everybody. It is Corey Poirier. Great to be back with the latest edition of the show and really excited to have a brand new guest with me today. I always like bringing on brand new guests. So Mitzi Purdue, really excited to have you here. And I think where I'd like to start is to maybe get you to tell us just a little bit, you know, about your background or your backstory, just for those that are maybe discovering you for the very first time today. Well, I'd love to. My backstory, it's a little bit unusual. And if I were writing the novel, I wouldn't believe it. But here it is. Uh, my father was the co-founder of the Sheraton Hotel Corporation. He was president and co-founder. My uncle was the other co-founder. Uh, so I grew up in the lap of luxury, but I also, uh, I got to see how a very entrepreneurial man created from no employees, he bought his first hotel, and at the time of his death, he owned, or the family owned, 400, and he employed 20,000 people. That's part one of my backstory. Part two, and now we're getting into what I would regard as unbelievable, but I've lived it, so it's true. I married a man with a remarkably similar story. Frank Perdue, who was my hero from the moment I met him till his passing, and actually still till today, he and his father started Perdue Farms, the chicken company, with no employees. At the time of his death, Frank Perdue employed 20,000 people. And yet, how it could happen that one person, namely moi, how, how one person could be closely associated with two people who have such a similar story. And I, I have a background in, in government. I, I have a master's in public administration. As an undergraduate, I majored in government and economics. I was very, very interested to see how my father had become such a success. Because even as just a little girl, it was really clear to me that he wasn't like all other daddies. I mean, good Lord, there are, our summer, the ballroom in our summer house holds 200 people. <laughs> and as a little girl, it wasn't invisible to me <laughs> that not everybody had a summer house with a ballroom with 200 people. So I was just endlessly curious how he did it. And then when I married Frank, all the questions I had about my father and how he did it, you know, I, I was really interested how Frank did it. And so what I just love to do and would adore to share with, with our listeners or viewers is how two people who are extraordinarily successful, how did they do it? I love that. And of course, our listeners, viewers, they would love to hear that. And I think one of the things I wanted to ask you right away is because I know you have a book that addresses how do we deal with these difficult times. And obviously we're, we're in going into a difficult time and we're in it now. And also from an economic point of view, I think we're even going deeper into it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, there was a great quote I saw the other day that reminded me of what we're going through. And the fact that it's not the first time ever, it's that in times like these, it's always important to remember there have always been times like these. And of course, it, it may not be the same, but it's still, you know, similar enough that we've been down this road before. So I really want to dive into that as well in terms of the work that you do in helping people realize that you can be up during down times. I, I would love to get into all of that. And actually, if you don't mind, that's kind of a segue into my father's story. Yeah. Because Sheraton Hotels began during the Great Depression. It was a time when everybody was running away from hotels and father just plunged into it. So, you know, he's an example of, of managing during really bad times. And now, Mitzi, I'll ask you a question here on this, and then we can dive right in. But now that you said that, I'm curious. And I'm trying to remember where I heard this, and it may have been Mark Victor Hansen who may have said it. It may have been somebody else. 
But I believe whenever he started it as well, he went in and told all the employees, look, you know, oh, we're, we're, yeah. we're, no matter what happens, we're in this with you. And that's, that's very rare during a, a, a great, you know, recession, depression, what have you. Uh, is, that, is that true, by the way? Uh, not only is it true, I think you just hit on my favorite story about my father. It was one that I grew up with. And, you know, because even as a little girl, I was forever asking him, Daddy, how did you do this? And one of the stories that he'd tell, actually many times, because I'd hear him tell other people about it, but when he'd take over a hotel and, you know, come back with me almost 100 years, and at the time of the Great Depression, there was 25% unemployment. I gather it's worse now. But back then, the 25% unemployment meant that if you lost your job, you almost certainly weren't going to get another. It meant the bread line. Mm -hmm. When he'd take over a hotel, the first thing that he'd do when he had taken ownership of it would be he'd invite all the employees, and there could be 400, 800 employees, he'd invite them into the hotel's ballroom. And he knew going in that every man or woman there was just really demoralized because they're probably afraid that they're going to lose their job. And, you know, redline. You know, it, 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 it had to be as demoralizing as anything in the world. Well, the first words out of his mouth when he's addressing you know, his new employees was, every one of you keeps your job. Hmm. And then he went on. He said, I want you to stay here because I know that you know your job better than anybody else on the planet. And my job in all of this is to give you the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how good you are. And then he went on from there because he said, you're going to see in a few months, this hotel, which has been teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, you're going to see that it will become the most popular, the best served, the most financially sound hotel in the whole city. We are going to be an example to the rest of the city that things can turn around. You'll see. Well, imagine what that must have meant to the employees, you know, from just despair to excitement. But that's not the end of the story. The next day, all the employees of the hotel would see just cavalcades, troops of people coming in, and there would be like decorators, electricians, plumbers. And the really interesting thing is these people from the outside who are refurbishing the hotel, because if a hotel's you know, been neglected for decades and is teetering on bankruptcy, everything's gone to seed. The first money father ever spent and what the employees saw the next day was that the money he spent wasn't on areas that the public would see. No, it would be the areas where the employees worked. It would be, for example, the employee dining rooms, lockers, showers, the rickety old elevators. He put the first money always into the areas that the public wouldn't see. So of course, you know, hearing this story, little Mitzi asks daddy, why did you do it that way? Wouldn't it make more sense to, you know, get the hotel on fine, sound financial basis by uh, appealing to the, to the paying public? And he said, no. He said, the success of any enterprise depends on the employees at every level. And this was signaling to them how important they were. And then he went on to say that persuasion comes in three flavors. You know, if he wants to motivate them, there were three 
like major principles of how you motivate people. And he said, the first one was, I could have stood up in front of them that first day and I could have told them using intimidation, which is principle number one, I could have used intimidation. I could have stood up in front of them and said, you shape up or you're fired. But he said, that's, that's in a, I mean, maybe you can get some cooperation, but it's done grudgingly. They do it you know, with a chip on their shoulder. Possibility number two, bribery. He said, I could have stood up in front of them and I could have said, every one of you, if you do a good enough job, there's a raise in it for you, there's a bonus. But he said, that's actually not a good approach either because it's too transactional. They're gonna work for the bonus, they're not gonna work for like the greater good. He said the one that he favored was inspiration. His catchphrase was, inspire, don't require. And the idea is if you're, say you're a bellman, or you're tending bar, or making beds or waiting table. Uh, if you're just, if that's your job, um, you know, you're not gonna go the extra mile, you're not gonna be excited to go to work. But if instead you're part of a team that's building the most successful, best served, most financially sound inspiration for the whole city, you know, that's, that's a whole different thing. Under those circumstances, you go the extra mile, you do everything, you do it for your team, you do it for the vision. And Father used to say, with that principle of inspire, don't require, he said, and this was one of his definitions of leadership. Now tell me if this isn't a goodie. Mm, this is called the dramatic pause. <laughs> <laughs> I already know it's gonna be a good. <laughs> he said, a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. So that, that woman waiting table, or that guy carrying your bags, uh, he, she isn't waiting table, he isn't carrying your bags. No, they're part of something better. They're gonna be an inspiration to the city. And Father was a big believer in self-fulfilling prophecies. So you give people this vision and they're gonna live up to it. Oh, which reminds me of another phrase that I grew up with, and which I'm eager to share with our listeners because it really works. It's worked throughout my life, and here it is. People have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. Hmm. Is that not a goodie? People have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. So just you know, give them a better vision and expect it and, and prove that you believe in them by, in his case, by having the first money in any hotel. And he had 400 by the time of his death. At any hotel, the first thing he, the first money he ever spent was in the areas that the public would never see, but the employees would. Wow. So there's so many things that popped into my head as you were sharing that story. And one of them was uh, just about a book that I read years ago around customer service. And the title alone did enough for me that if I never opened the pages of the book, I would have known more about customer service and creating customer experiences than I had before I ever saw the book. Uh, the title of the book was The Customer Comes Second. And of course, the premise is the employee comes first. Well, and you know, Frank Purdue had exactly the same thing because if you had asked either of these men who were frankly mega successful, they started with nothing and look what they created. Both men said it's the employees at every level that make for success. And to me, that instantly brings up the question, 
well, how do you how do you influence or persuade employees to go the extra mile? And that's what I think both men excelled at. So let me ask you this question then, and I think you were maybe driving at it as well, but what do you think, because your father, um, when he started the Sheridan, he didn't uh, have another company that he had built, you know, to that level previous to that. Um, so what allowed him to have that vision, do you think, to say to those employees, this is going to be the largest, this is going to be successful? Like, was it just that he felt it in his bones or, or did he, I mean, I'm just curious where you think he got that ability to say that, because in a tough time like that in the 30s, I mean, it's not easy to have that vision. Okay, uh, my impression is that father was somebody who used his greatest defect or inability or uh, disadvantage almost to, to make him who he became. And here's, here's the backstory of somebody who had such insight and such understanding of human nature. He didn't start out with it. Hmm. When he was 26, uh, he had never been able to stick to anything and he got engaged to my mother and my mother met her, her future mother-in-law for the first time. And grandmother Berta told mother who had come from a wealthy family, oh, Molly, don't marry Ernest. He can never stick to anything. You're going to end up poor. <laughs> and so, you know, this isn't a promising start for a marriage, but mother said, I don't care. I love him. I want to spend my life with him. And she did not end up poor. However, for the first few years, yeah, they were so poor that mother, you know, to put food on the table, discovered that with the, at the local grocery store, that if you bought cracked eggs, you could get them for a penny each. If you got them whole, they were five cents. And she figured out that if you heat them, that they were safe. But, you know, mother who, you know, in the end, uh, was sort of the queen bee of 400 hotels. You know, there was a period when she was shoveling coal in the basement to keep us warm uh, and should, uh, was using cracked eggs. So that's, that's kind of where father started. Well, at age 26, he thought, you know, I've, I've got to turn this around. Um, and so he went to a career guidance counselor. The, the counselor's name was Johnson O'Connor. And Johnson O'Connor was just fabulously good for my father, but probably not in the way that he intended. My father had picked him out of the, out of the phone book in Boston and spent an entire day taking all these tests. And what it revealed was that father had absolutely no ability to understand people. And Johnson O'Connor told my father, you're, you're clearly a smart guy. Um, I think you could be a scientist as long as you were in a laboratory and never had to interact with other people. Uh, because he, he just, he didn't have social skills. He didn't know how other people thought. He was just, well, father took that as a challenge because you know, he even told me this, that, that getting along with people is, one of the best, maybe most essential skills that a human being has to have. And so once he realized what his, what it's diagnosed as his extreme deficit, he made it as a business to overcome it. He began reading psychology books, taking courses, including public speaking, sales. Uh, later on in life, he made it his business to make friends with some of the world's most famous psychologists at the time, B.F. Skinner, Eddie Bernays, the father of modern advertising. You know, these people were guests at our home because father spent the rest of his life 
doing everything that he could to understand what makes people tick. And I think he became extraordinarily good at it because, you know, the rest of us just sort of take it for granted. But since he was utterly lacking in this ability, he studied it the way somebody else might, I don't know, crack the genetic code or something. And so he became just amazingly good at understanding. Like he knew that those people coming in uh, to the ballroom, meeting him for the first time, he knew how demoralized they were. He was aware that they probably weren't going to listen to a thing they were, he was going to say, as long as their great big pain was, I'm going to be fired, I'm going to be fired, I'm going to be fired. So he just alleviates that, the first, the first words out of his mouth. But he didn't, you know, to anybody who is, um, it, if there are any nerds listening to us, uh, my father was an example that, that you can study it and you can crack the code of how to get along with people and, and how to make them tick, or how they tick. And one of the things that he told me and I actually witnessed, you know the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? First book I ever read in my life. Not, not making that up at age 27. Ah, uh, okay, he took the course. Uh, he had his employees take the course. Uh, he, he told me that he read the book every 10 years because you need a refresher course. It's so important how to win friends and influence people that, that he simply, you know, eventually he employed 20,000 people and he was known as a captain of industry, still reading the book, still going back to the basics. So uh, I'm, I, I took the course. I think it was just one of the most fundamental things in the world. And I, you know, Dale Carnegie, I up there. I love you. Uh, you're, I'm on the same page as, uh, you know, it's the first book ever. And so I've shared that story, I don't know how many times on stages that, because a lot of people think if you're speaking, oh, you must be an avid reader. And it blows people's minds that I didn't, I couldn't finish a book until then. And his storytelling pulled me in in a way nothing else had. Oh, yeah. What a genius. And I read it a second time too, by the way. So it was the first and second book I read in my life. And then Think and Grow Rich was third. Uh, me too. So I was in oh. good company with those books. No, I'm a, I'm a complete addict of self-help books. Um, yeah, you know, without them, I wouldn't be any, well, yes, I would, because I'm an heiress. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you, you brought up a good question, because that's what, you actually answered part of the question I was going to ask next, which was, uh, with Frank and your father, were they both avid readers? Did they both believe in self-education, uh, feeding your mind, all that kind of stuff? It sounds like your father did. Uh, was, it, was that the same pattern as well? Yeah, with both men. Um, I made up a word. I mean, maybe somebody else has it, but here it is. You know about an omnivore or a carnivore? I do. Uh, I call them uh, informivores. They, they devoured information. Father, you know, both men were forever reading. Uh, I remember a story about my father that just impressed me so much because, you know, here's a captain of industry, unthinkably wealthy. And yet, uh, I remember one day he drove I think it was like 10 hours round trip from Boston to someplace in, I don't know, someplace in New Hampshire. And the, we're talking the 1950s now and the roads were all crummy and some of them were even dirt. And he went to, uh, to hear a speaker and there were only 10 people in the audience and the, and his the, the fellow people in the audience, you know, one owned a mom and pop grocery store, another a gas station. And here was he, somebody who was employing tens of thousands of people. And, you know, how did he fit in with, with the rest of the audience? 
And I asked him, you know, why did you make such a great big trip? Uh, you sh I would expect that you'd be hanging out with your peers like the head of General Motors or something. And he said, the speaker had important information that I wanted to learn, and I'm really glad that I went. Uh, and and he, he, he had another phrase, one good idea can change your life. So, and if you get lots of good ideas, they can, they can put you farther ahead in ways that you'd never dreamed of. So yeah, that was, that was my father. Frank, I think, took it even further. Uh, first of all, he was forever reading. Uh, but then on top of that, well, just as an example, when he got into advertising, this was a shy man who grew up on a farm, who had never even been in a school play, who had spent, you know, like the first, I'm gonna guess, maybe 25 or 30 years of his life in a small town. How could he make it big in Manhattan? Well, because he studied how to do it. He took a, uh, he took like 10 weeks, was it 10 weeks? 10 weeks from running his chicken company to move to New York to study advertising. And he joined the, I think I've got the name right, but like the Association, National Association. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.